Let's hear some of that movie chat. Credits roll by and I tip my hat. Credits roll by, I wanna know more right away. Let's have some of that movie chat. Credits roll by, tell me who did that. Life in the credits is where I wanna play. Welcome to Life in the Credits. This is the show where we learn about movies by chatting with people who work in the industry. I'm Susan. And I'm Ben. Today we're discussing the film Catch Me If You Can. And joining us today is our special guest, music supervisor Ryan Svensson. Hi, Ryan. Hello. How are you guys? Good. How are you? Doing good. Ryan, we are so excited to be talking to you today. We're super fascinated about what you do. So can you tell us a little bit, you know, what do you do and, and how does it work? Yeah, absolutely. So music supervision is basically the oversight and craft of adding music to visual media. And that could be across films, TV, video games, even YouTube videos that you watch online that are made by various people. And so there's so many things that you have to take into consideration when doing this, the time period, if the music's even feasible of being cleared and added to these films, because it has to be approved by the rights holders on the underlying composition of the song, as well as the the master, the record label side of the song. So there's just all these little intricacies that go on and music supervisors take that burden off of the producers or anyone else in the production. And through their relationships with publishers and labels and artists themselves can really find the most effective and budget-friendly sometimes. Uh, Other times you might have the budget to throw in huge songs in a film. (laughs) Yeah, totally. But it's about having the wherewithal and being on the pulse with music to basically bring the most innovative and music that makes the most sense for uh, a visual media project. Awesome. So interesting. At what point is a music supervisor brought in? Do you work with a composer or how does all that work? Yeah, in terms of timing, I get brought in at the script phase pre-development because I read the script and I do a breakdown. And some scripts are very specific on the music that needs to be put in there and others are very vague. So I'll be assessing what time era it is and what overall needs there might be based on the characters and their development. And some scripts might say, oh, uh, yeah, there's going to be a Beyonce song here. And then I'll know what the production budget is. And I'll raise my hand and say, hey, we actually have to have find an alternative here. Or there might be a script where there's lyrics that are spoken. um, And I'll have to red flag that because it's still from a song and you still have to get that cleared. So that's doing the source budget, which is music that's either going to be pre-existing that you put in the film or making original songs that you might hear like Happy or the the Charlie Puth uh, song with Wiz Khalifa that you always hear in the Fast and Furious songs. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of composer, they could be brought in in pre-production as well, because for films such as La La Land, um, that on-screen talent is singing and saying the lyrics and they need something to dance to and to sing to. And so it might be not be the fully recorded version yet. It might be a demo, yeah. uh, but it has to remain the same tempo, same lyrics. So it's it all depends on the different projects and uh, different aspects, but it's really most beneficial to any production to have the music supervisor evolve from the inception. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So what are some of the projects you've worked on in the past? Yeah, so at Lionsgate is where I really started to dip 
my foot into a ton of different productions. They pump out anywhere from 10 to 20 films a year. And it was, it was just a revolving door uh, from project to project. And one of the first projects I worked on there was the Hunger Games. Oh, cool. And that always had a, a really fun artist attached as the end title song for each one. So the first Hunger Games was Taylor Swift and the Silver Wars. The yeah. second one was Coldplay. And then the third one was Lord, who curated the whole soundtrack. And then also at Lionsgate, there were a bunch of other projects, but a really standout one was uh, La La Land. Yeah. And I worked on that for almost three years and overseeing the soundtrack and the score development and working with Interscope Records and getting that in, into the world and the rollout of the whole project. And then um, I'm at Millennium Medium now, which is an independent studio. And we have an actual studio in, Bulgar in Sofia, Bulgaria, where we make a lot of our productions. Oh, wow. And we do about um, eight independent films a year. And um, last year I got to work on The Outpost. And then uh, this year, uh, four films that I worked on came out, The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, oh, yeah. The Protege, which just came out with Lionsgate, um, Till Death, which stars Megan Fox, and then Jolt, which came out on Amazon starring Kate Beckinsale. Wow, that's that's pretty- uh, That's a ton of projects. Yeah, that's a lot of going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was pretty much all of 2020 was okay. wrapping those up and through the post pro uh, process, just because COVID, all these distributors and studios changed their distribution strategy. I mean, even right. the James Bond film isn't out yet. That's been delayed over 500 yeah. days, uh, right. if not more. And so um, as we see people starting to go back to theaters or these streamers like Apple TV and Amazon and all, all the other ones, um, they, they need product and we're the, yeah. we're the guys that make it. So it's, yeah. a, it's a really great time to be in film, in my opinion, because yeah. it's just more fruitful and on demand than ever. Yeah, people really need content, right? Because people are watching more than ever, I feel like. Yeah, it's it's easier to access yeah. films than ever. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I open up Netflix, I'm like, oh, nothing's on. But how, how ridiculous yeah. is that a thing to say when they have thousands of titles? I I remember yeah. used to getting, getting excited when uh, there was no on demand and yeah. just something was on with commercials and you're like oh you had to run to the bathroom and between commercial breaks and all this yeah. other stuff totally. <laughs> totally different now yeah yeah but I, I signed up for netflix back when it was discs you know they yeah. send you dvds in the mail oh yeah, yeah. so i was yes, excited you had, when you i got the wait. mail yeah you had to wait for the next day i was like cool three movies i can watch mm -hmm. you know unbelievable <laughs> like yeah. 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 I used to see those red slips in the mail and get real jealous. It's yeah. like, oh, that person has Netflix. That's cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> now we all have it. And right. I mean, the yeah. same goes for music. It's, it's just fascinating how much is at your fingertips mm -hmm. in Spotify and Apple music. It's, it's fascinating. And it makes my job way easier because if I need to find music of any genre of any time period, it's just at my fingertips. Yeah. And music supervisors used to have to take that trip to tower records or go through a pile of CDs. And so it's just, it's really amazing how much technology continues to um, evolve and change this field. Yeah. So when you're looking for music, do you sort of like, will you just listen to stuff and then sort of stash it away? Or will you wait for a project to come along that says, Hey, I need a song from the fifties. And mm -hmm. then you'll go look. Yeah, it's a variety. So I'm getting pitched 
every week constantly by publishers and labels and artists themselves. And I keep a folder with all that music that gets submitted to me so that I could search that first because those are already contexts that I'm in touch with and sure. yeah. I'm, is reliable. But if a script comes along or a project that has a certain need with someone that I'm not yet connected with, I could easily reach out and find who the rights holders are and start that dialogue. Um, and it's really about leveraging all those relationships so that when the time comes, I could execute in the best fashion possible because so, so often what happens is a director or producer really wants a song and I'll, I'll know that it won't be possible just because of my experience or if it's at a, at a budget, but it's my duty to come back to them and say, well, here are 10 different alternatives that create a same emotion or equal type of uh, feeling that you're trying to go for that might be a better alternative. And that's really the magic that happens and where my skill set comes into play. Um, but at the same time, I can't let my ego get in the way either yeah. as a music supervisor. It's really important to stay unbiased, but to also tell them about best practices and maybe like bubbling under artists that they simply might know not know about that could really enhance the film and add more people to get into the seats as opposed to having an artist who might not have as much traction yeah. or it might give an opportunity to an artist to really blow up because of the sync placement. So, yeah you know, it, it really, it just varies on project to project. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. So how much does it cost to license a song to put it in a movie? Yeah. I, and I could give you different ranges uh, yeah. and it all depends on the type of usage as well. Is it going to be a background vocal or is it a visual vocal of a band playing on stage? And then is it going to be an opening title song or is it going to be an end credit song? So the, these all weigh into the cost of the song ultimately and and this varies between tv as well as like the 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 but overall budget but it could range from incidental music being played at a bar in the background that you don't really know that could be anywhere from like a thousand dollars to five thousand dollars and then more mid-level artists you're looking at anywhere from 10k to 30k and then yeah. for major artists um if it's an original song or if it's a really well-known legacy artist, it could range anywhere from 150 to $500,000. Wow. Okay. If, if not more and original songs by very big artists, you know, could be even in the million dollar range. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reason behind that is first of all, pre-existing music, the power of it is that within the first three seconds of you hearing it, you know, how the rest of the scene is going to play out. You know, how the rest of the song is going to play out before you even see it or hear it. And these artists have worked so hard their whole lives to market themselves, to build that legacy, to build that recognizability. And, um, you know, they deserve to get yeah. compensated for that right. because it's enhancing your visual media products so much. And so uh, that's really a message that I want people to remember. And then also there are some legacy artists who get hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars thrown at them each year to license their music, but they choose not to. And because there is such thing as oversaturation, mm -hmm. also they might not want to be involved in a scene that might be a little raunchy or violent. So having the ownership of your music is really important because it's up to you as the artist to approve or deny those uses. Yeah. That's fantastic. Is there any time where you're like, I don't want to use this song because it's used too much? I'm thinking of like, 
you know, Spirit in the Sky is a, mm. is a song that's used in probably a hundred <laughs> movies. Um, yeah. is, is there anything like that where you're like, ah, you know, we don't, we want something unique. We want yeah. to stay away from something. Yeah, there, there are a ton of great options in that. One example I could think of is Until Death. And I don't want to tell you the song that they wanted to use for this mm -hmm. scene, but it was a recognizable scene that a lot of people know. But this was a thriller, horror, suspense film. Right. And one of the things that I thought of was, let's use uh, uh, still an authentic 60s song, mm -hmm. but it's a B-side song that many people haven't heard, but it still has that type of effect and eeriness feeling uh, but it really helps emphasize the scene even more and not knowing what's going to go on because people yeah. are trying to place what they're hearing in their head uh, to what's they're seeing on the scene and it's not quite fitting so it still leaves that element of suspense whereas I said earlier with certain songs you know exactly how it's going to play right. out and what's the fun in that right. uh, suspense but to your point as well there are some songs that have been used in like Cialis <laughs> commercials or right. Chevy yes. commercials where you're like, oh my God. And this, this essentially has ruined the song mm. for at least the next five years uh, yeah. while you still remember. Right. But it's like the, if you get your payday and you want to be associated with a T-Mobile commercial or whatever yeah. it might be, <laughs> yeah. but it, you got to understand it's going to be spun around the nation hundreds yeah. of thousands of times in different markets and to your point, it's, that's where rights management is really important. And to, you can't just say yes to everything. Like the song by the Lumineers, the Hey Ho song. I yes. mean, talk about sync placements for that. It really blew them up. But as soon as you hear that song, you know, it's gonna, you're going to know where it goes and right. it might not be the best fit or it could be, you know, yeah, it's a great song. Yeah, it is a good song, but yeah, yes. definitely very, very familiar. Yeah. So what is your background and like, what was your path to get to where you are now? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in the Bay Area and from a very early standpoint, I realized that it was going to be tough to get into a collegiate school that I wanted to go to based on academic merit alone. I wasn't a 4.0 student. I got B's and some A's. And so I realized I needed to excel at something similar to how a lot of people get in because of sports or extracurricular activities. And uh, I started playing trumpet in the fifth grade and I looked at all these instruments they had laid out at the public middle school. And uh, it just had, the trumpet looked so easy because it had three valves, but I, you know, <laughs> I quickly found out. Buttons. Yeah, I saw the saxophone with all these buttons. I'm like, yeah. no way, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. But the trumpet ended up being way harder just physically yeah. and pretty hard instrument. yeah yeah it's it's tough to really get any note out and so I went down that road and kept playing and then about my junior year of high school I started to get really serious about trumpet and so I stopped doing swimming and water polo to really focus on it because I knew that at the collegiate level you could audition and they need really good players and mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to be was a trumpet performance major and so got good at it. I joined a couple of youth orchestras and then I, I auditioned all around and then I got into UCLA and uh, going there, I really learned the landscape of musicians in the most competitive market, arguably in the world for it. So I was a very, very small fish in a big, big pond now. And that ultimately made me realize there's no way I'm gonna make it in this industry or in this career as a trumpet player alone. Mm -hmm. So I started to pivot my junior year of college as well. 
and I went started to go behind the scenes and luckily at in LA they have a lot of record labels and different companies so I got an internship at Warner Brother Records in their marketing department cool. and I saw how a label works and how they have a PR department and a radio department and how marketing works with promotions and how they launch albums and I and I really enjoyed their office space so I thought okay this is the side of the industry that I want to be on and then uh, my first job, I started watching Entourage in college as well. And I I didn't want to be like Ari, but seeing just how he was the focal point and the go-to for an artist uh, and developing their career is something that really intrigued me. So I made it a goal to be an assistant at a talent agency. And mm-hmm. I ended up becoming an assistant at United Talent Agency where I was for a year. And I learned about how artists book tours and tours get routed and all that fun stuff. And um, I was there for a year. And then I went back to the artist management side at Azoff Music Management. And then I was there for about six months. And then an opportunity opened up at Lionsgate and Mm -hmm. interviewed there and ended up getting it. And I was there for about seven years and then um, joined Millennium in 2019. And it's been absolutely fantastic at Millennium just because it's a group of people who are passionate about films, know how to make them, and they just pump them out. And it's been, it's been so much fun to just be a part of it and help out on the music side for each of their projects. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm sorry, we'll go back to process one more time. Yeah, of course. I'm so fascinated (laughs) by it. So after you select a song and it gets approved, you know, budget signed off on all that kind of stuff, who do you pass it to? Is it the music editors or is it somebody else? Yeah, it's the music editor and they could properly chop it up, um, bring down the vocals at certain points or enhance them. And that's why it's really important for artists and uh, publishers to have stems on hand as well, because they could easily isolate a vocal or take out the bass or whatever it may be so that it blends better with the dialogue within the film. And then also you might have the composer's underscore as well playing with that at the same time. So having it not conflict and all mixed well and properly is uh, what the music editor best does. And then from there, you just hope that it's well received by the audience. (laughs) Cool. And who do you work with when you're looking at music? Uh, Do you work with the composer or do you work with like the director, the writer? I mean, who... Who is sort of giving you the, I want this kind of music kind of direction? Yeah, that's first and foremost, the director and the producers. And in the beginning of the process, as soon as there's a director's cut, or even before then, uh, there's a spotting session, which is where I will sit with the composer and the director and we'll go through and say, hey, this is a scene where I want this score to be played or this you know type of score to be played. And then here we should put in a source song and we could discuss later on what that song is going to be. Mm-hmm. Or here I want an original and title song. Let's start thinking of some artists that would be best for this. Or here I want silence. And then it, um, so it's a very, it's a collaborative process and um, it could always be altered, which is the exciting part. I've been in sessions where if the budget isn't as fruitful, we replace uh, source songs with score. And mm-hmm. then it's been the other way around where if the score is really not getting to where we want it to be, we could drop in a song there as well, or find 
an artist to do a custom song. Um, so it's a little all over the place. Interesting. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit some differences between TV and film, but how does music supervision differ between the two, if at all? Budget primarily, but also timetable yeah. is pretty crazy because you might be on a weekly release schedule right. where you have to formulate and get out another episode within a week based on if it's reality or whatever it may be. But the the interesting part now is especially the rollout of everything. I mean, HBO s- still does a traditional weekly release yeah. for certain things like Game of Thrones, whereas Netflix will just drop all 16 episodes at once, right. but right. it might have been finished for a while and not on a rolling basis as some other um, TV programs are. Um, and then also the amount of music used. Some shows are just so fruitful in all the source music and it becomes a focal point, you know, one, starting out on scripted reality like the OC, you know, yes. that, that had yeah. so many songs in Grey's Anatomy, um, which really broke a lot of songs as well. Um, and so <laughs> and there's also something known as like the Grey's Anatomy curse, I believe, which oh, no. because a lot of artists who did have a song on there, they ended up becoming like one hit wonders. Oh, no. Like, really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, oh, no. yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's like, yay. No. Uh, but yeah, um, got a TV show. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's the end of that. Yeah. <laughs> it's I don't know. I don't believe in those things like the Madden curse or anything like that. Yeah. When it comes to film it's such a bigger beast in terms of the release and the revenues that come in um, and the ride that the, the timetable that everything goes on. It's um, it could be years, you know, whereas TV is right. much more rapid and, and faster and digestible. Right. Yeah. I love that you mentioned the OC because that's the first TV show I remember watching where I like really cared about the music in it too. And yeah, it was so yeah. good. That was done by Alex Pitsavis, who okay. is uh, an executive at Netflix, and okay. she just got an Emmy nomination for uh, Bridgerton. Oh, awesome. Nice. And Very cool. what I enjoyed m- most about that series was their integration of classical music mm-hmm. from that era, but they did covers of very popular current songs as the underscore. Yes. Yeah. And it was just such a nice touch because you're seeing these scenes play out and you're like, oh, it's classical music. But you're like, wait, that's Ariana Grande or <laughs> yeah. uh, whoever else it might be. And it was just a really, really nice touch. And yeah. I think it also, since classical music just isn't utilized too much these days, it mm-hmm. brought that to the ears of a younger generation yeah. that might not be too keen to it. Right. Very cool. That's clever. Yeah, it is. So uh, you're the chair of your alma mater uh, alumni board. Yes. So what inspired you to get involved there and, and what do you do? Yeah, great question. So the Herb Albert School of Music is a new school within UCLA. Uh, it's actually the newest school within UCLA. It was as an independent music school and they have absolutely totally rebranded since I graduated there in 2010. And it's extremely exciting. They're really upgrading the whole department, all all the departments, the curriculum as a whole to be more innovative and geared towards the music industry as we know it today. And with that, outreach is extremely important and networking between Mm -hmm. alumni and current students. So the alumni board really tries to bridge that gap and be a resource for current students and with our alumni so that 
we could connect the dots and help get them internship opportunities, help answer any questions that they may have about the music industry, about their time at UCLA. So it's really to be a resource and then to also advocate on their behalf um, for opportunities within the music industry. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very cool. In addition to, you know, your job, you're also a musician. You know, how do you work that side of, you know, uh, being a musician into your job or vice versa? Yeah, that's a great question as well. Well, first of all, being a musician helps on the technical standpoint of understanding timetables, the artistry of the composer itself. Um, I love being in sessions where I read along with the music and um, I'm the type of managerial standpoint where I do not micromanage whatsoever. I let the artist art very much so uh, just because I know from my standpoint, I don't want someone saying, well, you should edit that note or doing things like that. It's like, no, um, this is why we hired this artist to bring their best knowledge to the project. But in terms of trumpet, I really started to dive back into it in 2016 because I didn't want anyone to think I was in the industry for the wrong reasons. Mm -hmm. First off, like I wanted to establish myself first as someone behind the scenes, but then I started hearing all these songs that were using fake horns. And I thought, why, why is this happening? And because they sound horrible and they don't have the human emotion that- What does that mean, fake horns? They're they're like synth horns that you play on the piano, Mm -hmm. but they sound like a real trumpet, but they, they sound more dull and you could just tell it doesn't have the human emotion and resonance and tone that a real trumpet or horn has similar to if you hear strings being played it won't have the same vibrato Mm -hmm. that a a human emits and Mm -hmm. and they actually sound really corny and I was hearing these full sections and I was just like man um you know that's one thing about music in the 60s 70s and 80s that they really Mm -hmm. didn't sway from because first of all they didn't have the technology to have fake horns but to have full sections come together and really vibe and you know bruno mars has been doing amazing things justin timberlake and his Mm -hmm. band have been doing amazing things with horn sections so i said i set out to really get in the forefront and meet with producers to not only learn about the projects that they're working on but to also be a resource in case they ever need horns as well yeah so they've aided each other in the sense that i could be in a session and chatting it up with the guys and hearing about the latest projects they're working on and music that's going to eventually come out. So I'll have a leg up as a music supervisor knowing what's going to drop in the future, but then I'll also be able to provide these horns if they need them and, and be in the room and not be like a conflicting or someone who's going to steal publishing from them or, or change the lyrics. Like I'm a, I'm a non-threat in there because everyone's like, Oh, horns. I love horns, you know, and their (laughs) eyes light up. And I'm like, yeah, I got you covered. You know, I'm happy to help. Yeah. I just started at a very small level. I had no idea how to get a gig. I didn't know where to go about. So I started reaching out to people and being proactive. And I've reached out to thousands of artists saying, Hey, you know, I heard your song drop this Friday on Spotify. It sounds great. Would love to add horns. Mm -hmm. I've been ignored thousands upon thousands of times, but Every once in a while you get a yes and they've led to some really, really cool opportunities. 
and um, it's been a lot of fun. The biggest one that happened recently was Lil Nas X. Oh, nice. He had a song called Industry Baby with Jack Harlow. And that whole song is a horn hook and they had trombone, but I knew the producers that were working on it and they sent it over and said, Hey, can you add trumpet to it? And one thing led to another. And uh, now it's gone platinum. Yeah, that's yeah. It just got, it just reached 400 million streams Uh today on Spotify and the UCLA band is playing it at every single game, (laughs) uh, football game. So it's like, cool moments like that where you're sitting at home and I was with my dad and then I hear the band playing industry baby I was like that's the one I played on you know that's (laughs) those are my yeah and it's it's just kind of like a full circle thing and a cool thing to because my whole objective was to be heard but to also let people know that you know you could have an impact on a very small level on Uh these certain songs through your instrument if you really get out there, but I mean, the process took a long time. I went from playing in people's closets to yeah. different studios. I got to go to Michael Jackson's studio where he did all the thriller. Wow. So it's been, a, it's been a ride. It's been a ride for sure. But I just, uh, I always just want to be a resource for people in case they need horns. Mm-hmm. That's, that's awesome. awesome. That's so cool. And then Thank to you. have you sell LA play it too. I mean, that, that is like full circle. Yeah. I got, <laughs> I got kind of shivers when that happened. Yeah. I was like, no way. That's so cool. Like <laughs> to go from playing it literally right here. Right. And then a month later it's being played at the VMAs uh-huh. and then at by the band that I used to be a part of, I yes. was in the marching band for two years at UCLA. So it was kind of a full circle moment. So cool. Wow. Congratulations. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Very Thanks. cool. Um, well, yeah, that might be the answer to my next question, but um, do you have in your career, like a, either a favorite moment where you're like, I cannot believe this is what I get to do for a living or a moment where you're like, I cannot believe this is what my job is right now. <laughs> like anything like that. Yeah. And I think a moment for me that's, that was very, very special was in 2017 during the Academy Awards, uh, they La La Land won for best score. And then the very next category is best song. And yeah. then it won for best song. And uh, during Justin Hurwitz, uh, who's the composer acceptance speech, he, he thanked me. And I, while I was watching, I was, I was with two of my very good friends and I, I heard my name and I, I, they looked at me and they started yelling and I started yelling yeah. and we, we played it back. And then I called my parents and they were crying. Oh and then my gosh. Uh, I got about like uh, 60 text messages saying, what was that? What, like, what, like, congrats. Yeah. Like, you know, that's so cool. Yeah. And it's just one of those moments that makes, um, you know, the sacrifice that you put into it and all the work that goes into it it kind of makes you uh, really, really appreciated and filled with gratitude that that you're part of this overall project that impacts people. Because sometimes when you're in the thick of it, you yeah. forget about why you're doing this and hearing stories about people who just need to escape for like two hours and watch the film or want to dream a little bit more and have their hopes regenerized. And uh, I think the story of La La Land really did that for a lot of people because yeah it doesn't end in the way that everyone wants it to. Mm -hmm. And um, LA is very much like that. And the thing is like, even though your dreams might not come out to fruition the way you want it to, it's, you're still doing cool things and you're still on a path and that, that path might've opened up other doors for you that you might have not realized. So 
um, I think stories like that and the way that visual media impacts so many people so rapidly, and it could be the talk of the town and whether, I mean, even in 2017, when people were talking between Moonlight and La La Land and the discussion, mm -hmm. I was just sitting back on Facebook, like, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to chime in at yeah. all because it's, it cre at least creates a dialogue mm -hmm. and yeah. it's really fun for, to see that people just take it so seriously. Yeah. You know? It's, totally. uh, uh, and to say that you could, you were involved in it or played a small aspect in it, it was, it's, uh, really rewarding. So, yeah. um, yeah, I'm just all about bringing the most innovative music techniques to a project and getting it to the finish line and having it impact nicely so that it could create dialogue and or not or uh, or just be like, oh, that was a nice film, you know, yeah. <laughs> so that was a, a nice moment. Back That's then. so cool. Thank you. Yeah. What advice do you have for people who are interested in getting into a job like yours, you know, working in either music supervision or mm -hmm. just music in general in films or TV? That's a great question. And the best part is there's more connectivity than ever. It's easier to look at someone's career trajectory on LinkedIn mm -hmm. to be a part of an organization like the Guild of Music Supervisors, which really fosters up and coming music supervisors and connects them with leading music supervisors. There's mentorship programs involved with that. There's workshops. Uh, there's more YouTube videos than ever on these subjects to get educated. So I, my main thing would be to explore and set a game plan and a, a goal, a lofty one, because as I was saying earlier, if you don't achieve that goal, at least it will open up other doors and avenues that you might've not otherwise experienced or wanted to experience. Like with me and Trumpet, I made that a goal, but I ultimately realized it wasn't going to be that, but I still get to do it as well. Yeah. So it ended up being a nice compromise, but there's just so many resources. So Guild of Music Supervisors, uh, I cannot advocate how important it is to be an intern. Mm -hmm. uh, now, pretty much every single internship is paid. When I was an intern at Warner Brothers, it was not paid. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's at least an added benefit. Uh, and you don't have to choose between being a host at BJ's like I was, or you know, work behind the scenes in the industry. Yeah. And it's also really important to get a mentor as well, who's been in the industry for a while. And it's all about putting yourself out there and reaching out. I mean, all these people are at your fingertips. It's just about refining your approach and how to best articulate and reach out and ask for things without asking too much in a way. Um, just say, hey, you know, can I get five to 10 minutes of your time for a quick informational to really mm -hmm. educate myself more? I'd love to go down this avenue, uh, that type of thing. So yeah, just be proactive, get out there. But also everyone that a lot of people that I interact with who will send me messages on LinkedIn or whatnot will immediately shoot for the top. Yeah, sure. And there's, as opposed to setting a realistic, entry level mm -hmm. goal, whatever it may be. And so when I meet with people, especially at UCLA career fairs and stuff, they're like, oh yeah, I want to be an executive. And it's like, yeah, yeah. you know, we all do. We all want to be that <laughs> CEO position yeah. making all this money, but can you be an assistant first? Mm -hmm. What what happened to that? Can, I, can you actually sit at a desk and answer yeah. phone calls and process emails? and master that first before we really look at the next avenue. Right. So um, I always encourage people to look at people's LinkedIn trajectories and see where 
all these people they look up to first started yeah because that's a great entryway to getting their path and um, you really have to say yes to every interview uh, right away you can't mm-hmm. be picky and you know you have to be willing to sacrifice a year or two um, at a low level paying job if you want to advance in this industry that's just how it's always been i yeah. wish everyone out of college could be making 50 to right. 70k a year yeah. but my first job was as an assistant i was making 27,000 a year living in la with three other roommates you know yeah. right so um it's uh it's not an easy road i never want it, it a lot of people get lost in the glamour of mm-hmm. hollywood and you know i want to articulate that it is um not as easy as mm-hmm. it appears sometimes mm-hmm. so uh, just the full disclaimer, but yeah. that being said, um, there are so many people working behind the scenes who are encouraging, who are uplifting, who are open to connecting and articulating more about what they do. And, uh, it's a really fruitful community. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Perfect. Let's get to our featured film. Today, we're discussing the 2002 biopic, Catch Me If You Can. The screenplay was written by Jeff Nathanson, and the book the movie was based on was written by Frank Abagnale Jr. and Stan Redding. It was directed by Steven Spielberg, and it stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, and Christopher Walken. It was nominated for two Oscars, including Best Actor in a Supporting Role for Christopher Walken and Best Music Original Score for John Williams. So, Susan, before we talk about the movie, you can give us a quick breakdown. What was this film about? Yes, and um, there might be some spoilers in this description. <laughs> so, yeah, we it, this is a true story based on a true story about Frank Abagnale Jr. Um, he's this 17-year-old kid. He finds out his father's store is not doing well. Um, he finds out his parents are getting a divorce. He has to switch schools. And he decides instead to run away at the age of 17 and he becomes this huge maker of fraudulent checks. Um, I think it said he was like the most successful bank robber in the history of the United States. He fakes being a teacher at first at his new school. He fakes being a doctor. He fakes being an airline pilot, which is, I mean, the doctor went also mind blowing, but um, he's just an incredible, he's incredibly good at lying. He's incredibly good at making a fake persona. Um, he fools a lot of people. Uh, he gets a girl to be engaged to him and tricks her whole family into thinking he's a doctor and a lawyer. Um, (laughs) yeah, just this, um, just a really brilliant guy who uses his intelligence to be a forger, a really successful one, um, until the age of 19, when he is finally, well, I think before the age of 19, he conned Pan Am out of millions and millions of dollars. He was pursued the whole time by this FBI agent, our Carl Hanratty, who's played by Tom Hanks. And this guy's whole mission is catching Frank Abagnale Jr. He finally does eventually, but it takes a long time and he gets tricked a lot. Um, then eventually Frank Abagnale Jr. does um, to get out of his prison sentence, starts working for the FBI. And now he's just a really, is he still alive? I believe, yeah, I believe he is. Um, he's just now he's a really successful kind of consultant to the FBI and all these huge financial companies to keep them from getting, yeah, he actually works again. Yeah, yeah. he works to me to stop, um, yeah, because he's just the fraud. best at it. So, yeah, yeah. So, Ryan, you chose this movie. Why did you pick it? The, the main reason I picked this film was because of the music and the overarching themes, uh, especially in the score by John Williams. I think he does an absolutely fantastic job 
uh, creating three different melodies that you hear throughout the film. One represents the relationship and internal drama with his family that mm -hmm. has like a gorgeous saxophone uh, solo. The other is the risk of getting caught that plays every single time he's doing something risky or Hanratty's coming after him. It's the doing, 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 doing. That one really stands yeah. out. Yeah. And then the third one is the, the sense of exploration and opportunity that comes every single time he sees something new that could get him a, a new identity or a new way out. And that's the bum, 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 and that just invokes whenever I hear that I get excited. Like I want to go out yeah. and go for a run or something. Uh, yeah. And it, it, it has a euphoric feeling, which he achieved every single time he dipped his feet into something new and changed his identity. So that first and foremost on the score side, but on the source side, you have a 1960s picture, which just evoked so many different uh, songs from that era. And then also so many different seasonal themes. Um, you had a lot of Christmas. So they had chestnuts on a uh, roasting on an open fire, but Nat King Cole. Um, you had come fly with me when mm -hmm. he ha has all those stewardess behind yes. him uh, in the airport scene, that scene with Jennifer Gardner, yeah. uh, the, the look of love by uh, Diana Krall. And then even in the beginning, when Frank's dad uh, played by Christopher Walken is with his mom. It's Embraceable You by Judy Garland. So it's just all these like crooner songs that are instantly transport you to that time era mm -hmm. and bring a feeling that of just like warmness because they're yeah. so identifiable and, and just landmark songs. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. The music definitely was a standout this movie's so fun to watch like there's never there's never a slow like or boring moment it's just no yeah yeah so. and you know just talked about the actors for a second uh leo <laughs> i think this is the first time i saw leo in a movie and i'm like you're great like for a mm. while I, I saw a couple of his movies and i was like eh but uh this one he, he was really really great in it and tom hanks usually plays some kind of version of Tom Hanks where he's like a nice guy who does cool stuff and he's very nice. And, but in this movie, he, he really throws himself into this character. I thought they were both so good and their relationship, you know, it was kind of like a father son relationship, mm -hmm. but it was also, you know, of course like cat and mouse type games. And of course, you know, Steven Spielberg directed it. It's super well directed, but it's just such an interesting story. Cause there's no, like, even though, Leo's doing bad stuff, you know, Frank's doing bad stuff. I don't, you know, he's still very sympathetic, yeah. right? So you want <laughs> him to, he's still a young kid, you know, he, he's figuring stuff out. He's running away from his problems. Um, but he, he's so, you still want to root for him. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, even the FBI guy could theoretically be the villain in this movie. You, you root for him <laughs> too. You know, it's like, there's no real, you just want everyone to succeed in the end. And they kind of do. Yeah, absolutely. And, seeing the characters develop i mean even seeing leonardo caprio from the young boy he is to how he is at the french prison towards the end yeah. like right. how is this the same movie in the right. same era um it almost feels like something like uh i think it was called boyhood where it was actually filmed over 10 years uh -huh. yeah the, uh, so uh, with e ethan hawk yeah. yeah yeah um where you actually see the development of their facial features that much right. and actually growing up but 
yeah, his character evolves throughout. And as you were saying, Hanratty, you know, gives him a stern talking. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the most pivotal scenes is when towards the end, he joins the FBI and then he's planning to leave as for the weekend as a pilot again. Yeah, in the tunnel, you mean. In the tunnel. And then uh, Tom Hanks, Hanratty's meets up with him and he's also like, he's just like, you know, no one's chasing you anymore. So do whatever you want to do. And that's kind of like, when someone has the conversation is like, honestly, I'm not upset. I'm just disappointed. Yeah. And then he realized, well, you know, I could, there's someone actually who cares for me Yeah. and I have this opportunity where I could do good for the rest of my life, as opposed mm-hmm. to causing all this chaos and devastation, even though that is what thrilled him and made it yeah. so exciting for the short amount of time that right. he was doing it. Totally. Yeah. And that their relationship between Hanratty and Abigail is so interesting too, because Hanratty should hate him. He makes him look dumb so many times. Right. Like, exactly. He makes him so many times. Right. Um, especially in the whole that first time in the hotel room where he hands him the wallet and he Hanratty doesn't look in the wallet. Yeah. And, uh, um, but he does and he still cares about him, even up to the end where he's trying to run away again, like that you said that scene in the tunnel. You can see him the next day at work, like hoping Frank is going to come in. He keeps mm-hmm. looking at the clock. When that guy walks in the meeting, he's just like, I don't, and it's, it doesn't feel like he's like, oh, I hope this guy comes back so I don't get in trouble. It's, oh, I hope he comes back because I want him to come back. Because he cares about him. Yeah. It's so, it's really powerful. It's really well done. It's so subtle, it but like you could know exactly what the motivations are. Yeah. And I love all the weird ticks <laughs> that, that make the characters feel real. Like, yeah. you know, the fact that Frank is constantly taking the labels off of bottles. Like, what a weird yeah. tick to have, you know? Mm. And, and, um, Henry is always working Christmas. You know, he, he's just like that devoted to his job and he's the only one who takes it seriously, even mm-hmm. though he has these other people in his department that don't even, you know, like they think of it as a throwaway, like a like a bad assignment to work in, in the check fraud department. Exactly. But, you know, I, I just really like these characters and they're they're so entertaining. And the period is wonderful, you know, to have them running around in the 60s with the music and the cars and the, the costumes and the mm-hmm. set design. They're all fantastic. Um, it really makes it like a, seem like a really fun, um, you know, era, but also like it's grounded in that family drama too. And that's what Christopher Walken really brings to it, <laughs> Yeah, you know, to, to watch that guy fail, but also, you know, motivate Frank to, to try to, to be more than he is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He always ha- had his father at a, a very high pedestal, which yeah. a lot of kids do for their parents. They think that they can't do any wrong, but meanwhile, this is a really pivotal age for him and he wants his parents so badly to be together mm-hmm. and keeps trying, you know, buys his dad, the Cadillac keeps saying, you're going to go see this. Like he tries to throw money at the problem, you know, cause he's doing so well, but it just can't fix it. And once he un- ultimately understands that, and then, you know, here's the news about his dad as well. It's, it's like, yeah. he kind of just surrenders. Right. He right. doesn't try to chase other things that are going to bring fulfillment in his life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, he's really motivated by his family. He goes, runs to try to find his mom, you know, when he gets back to the States. Yeah, exactly. But I also feel bad for that family in Louisiana that he just totally... Oh, yeah. my goodness, yeah. Oh, my God. oh You hate to see it. I mean, yeah. just comes in and uh, garners the trust of everyone and then ultimately uh, does what he does best yeah. and, and destroys it. Uh, but 
I did find it fascinating that he actually did pass the bar after studying yeah. for only two weeks. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. So yeah. Just, obviously he was a mastermind and super smart. And yeah. uh, again, it's just about using it for better than for right. worse. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And he, he works really hard at being a con man. Like, you know, yeah, he, he's, yeah. he's constantly figuring stuff out. He, Doing his it's, research. It's not because he's lazy but because he's chasing something uh, bigger than himself. Yeah, he found something he's good at, right? Right, right, <laughs> exactly. Leaned into his strengths. That scene where um, he has to actually practice medicine in the emergency room is just- Oh yeah, I was just thinking about that. How's he gonna get out of this? Like- yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. Did not do well during that one. No. <laughs> do you concur? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, I concur. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great scene. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I also love the scene where he's in the courtroom and the judge is like, what are you doing? Right. Like, yeah. There's there are no jurors. There <laughs> is no defendant. Yeah. He's just being screamed at. It's so good. But it's also it's sort of indicative of like, man, you could get away with a lot. You know, you could be you could get away with being bad at your job for a long time if you just had the confidence of, yeah. <laughs> of doing. Yeah, so. just fake it till you make it. I guess. Fake it till right. you make it. Yeah, yep. it's the ultimate example of that. <laughs> Bad lesson for all you kids out there. <laughs> right? yeah, yeah, don't do it. Yeah. Or only well, do it for a couple of years and then right. join the FBI. 17 to 19. And then- <laughs> yeah, that's your yeah. Great, grace, <laughs> that's your grace period. <laughs> We're going to cut over to legal court. No, the Life of the Grass podcast does not suggest <laughs> yeah. becoming anyway. a check forger. Right. <laughs> well, did you guys have anything else that stood out to you about the movie, a favorite scene or uh, anything like that? There were so many good scenes. I do really love when he was walking to the airport with all those uh, women. I don't, <laughs> but my whole thought was what happens when he gets to the plane and all these flight attendants, they don't. I was thinking that plane. as well. They're like, they're going to be like, why are we double staffed? Right? And like, they why won't there's... know, they won't know how to, uh-uh. you know, and then how are they on payroll or right. and stuff like that? Right. That's what I was thinking about as well. Um, but they, they conveniently don't show that part where he actually has to get on the plane with like, what it was like six or seven women it was eight i think yeah it was eight yeah eight flight attendants just all right lots of people on this flight right <laughs> yeah and uh another pivotal scene that i really enjoyed was uh when he is working for the fbi and he's wa- walking home one day uh and he has the bag of groceries and then he looks to his left and he sees the pilot's outfit in the store window yeah yes. again that theme of like dun, 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 starts to come on and then you're just like oh here we go you know yeah. what he's gonna do because that's the exploration and intrigue yeah uh type of feeling and um I just think it was just so brilliant how that, that was interwoven throughout the whole film to really emphasize those scenes and what his mindset was thinking in each, without telling you, it, it was, you know, the music was conveying that. That's fantastic. I mean, that's the power of music in movies, right? Mm-hmm. It can tell you what someone's thinking or feeling or, you know, what's about to happen. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, and people really do pick up on cues, like the um, even at the b- beginning of the movie when, you know, he's in the prison and he's faking being sick and they, they put him in, in the bed and then, uh, you know, ha- uh, Hanratty starts to talk to the doctors. Susan goes, he's not going to be in the bed. Yeah. He's already yeah. out the door. Yeah. And, and of course he was like, I mean, really what music brings to movies is the emotion or, you know, it, it's such a cool tool to use and it's so neat that you know how to use it. Yeah to tell a story without needing to spill everything out. Yeah. And I think that if I 
do dive into this more and have the opportunity to work with more renowned composers and stuff, I, I really want to articulate to bring back themes because mm-hmm. that, that 80s and 90s era of films, and as we'll probably do in the game portion, yeah. it's like a theme is so important. And I feel like with a lot of some of the more recent blockbusters, uh, they're kind of missing out on that. And mm-hmm. you don't go away humming a certain melody or feeling that triumphantness. Um, and I, I just love it. I, yeah. I, that's why I think John Williams is just the greatest of all time yeah. with that. And what a master just, yeah. Yeah. Thinking yeah. about modern movies, the only one I can think of that has a theme I recognize is like Avengers. That yeah. theme I can recognize, but like, yeah, there really aren't that. A lot of superheroes have left. themes. Yeah. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think that's a good point. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, is that a trend that you're seeing Ryan just in the movies in general? Is like that kind of music's going away? Um, I, it's definitely not utilized as much because certain scenes within films don't have that epic of a moment where it's really the melody could ride it out. And it, there's so much action going on that, uh, I've seen a lot more triumphant bass and synth sounds. And you have things like Inception and the whole Hans Zimmer right um yeah effect where it's, it's very popular yeah exactly and it does its job though it's it still does amazing things but again um i think just me with the nostalgia of 80s and 90s films yeah. and really being so melody driven it's just something that i would like to see more <laughs> yes totally yeah. or hear more yeah, yeah. absolutely We'd like to finish up our show today with a game that we're calling Hum That Theme. We're going to see how well both of you know the music of well-known songs in movies. Ryan, you're going to be teaming up with Susan. So here are the rules. I've given each of you a list of well-known movies with famous musical scores. You will take turns humming or whistling the songs to each other as quickly as you can, but you cannot use any words. Your partner must name the movie the song is from. You will have three minutes to get your partner to guess as many as possible. If you get seven right, Ryan will win our prize. Susan, what's our prize? Uh, it is a uh, Life in the Credits t-shirt. So yeah. And we'll mail that to you. We'll send you some yeah. merch. Okay. If that's the case, then how about I hum it? Because I'll be bet- I think I'll be better at humming. Okay. You want to win. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. All right. I, I have a feeling good. you're going to be very good at this. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Ready? This isn't Indiana Jones. Nope. Oh my God. Okay, I'm switching movies. Okay, I did. Indiana Jones? Yeah. Okay, I yeah. Same one. Okay. Um, All right. Go okay. Susan, go. Um, okay. Oh, no. All right. It's all right. Okay. Um, do, 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 
I know, I know that melody. I'm just not pairing it with the right film. Right. All right. Do another one. Sorry. Do, 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 do. Celine Dion, Titanic. Yes. Yes. Two points. All right. You're up, Ryan. Okay. Yep. Three points. All right. Um. Do 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 do. Oh, uh, the boogie, not Boogie Nights. It's uh, the John Travolta. Yep. Um, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, no. four points. Yeah, okay. All right. Okay. Um, he's got a friend in me. Toy yep. Story. Yeah, five yep. points. I said the song. <laughs> yes, very good. Blooded it out. Okay. Um, one minute. Mission Impossible. Yeah. Six points. One more. Okay. Um. Da 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 Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you got 15 seconds. All right. Okay. Uh, uh, um, Superman, right? No, no close. Um, let me think of another here. Um, I'm gonna like oh, three minutes. Uh, All right, over let me give yeah, that was somewhere yeah. over a rainbow. Uh let me give you another song for That's, that same uh, Wizard of Oz. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Let me give you another one. Dun 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 dun. That's Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars. I cannot believe I knew Well, <laughs> I was I don't know if it's because it was the first or it was the second melody you sang, uh, but I know what that is. I just didn't. Yeah, I say Simpsons, and I say. Oh my God! Yeah. Yeah, I know, right? It's so hard though, because they're like Danny Elf. Because like I was thinking only films. Right. Well, Simpsons is a movie. (laughs) Oh. And so that's why I included it on the list. It was a hard one. The other one was Space Jam. Okay. Well. Okay, that was that was tough. That's a that's a tough one. Yeah. Oh, guys, you did so well, Ryan. Yeah. Congratulations, oh, you won. You. Yeah. That was a challenging that game. So that it, it really makes you think. It yeah. really, to connect the dots and yeah. to also, the, a lot of these have multiple really big songs. So it's yeah. tough to yeah. like, yeah. The sound of music would have been tough. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I would have done, you know, the the hills or, yeah, yeah, exactly that one. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's that was, fun though. I had a fun. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, you, yeah. you won. Yeah, Congratulations. You did, you you did awesome. Thank you. Oh, no. <laughs> All that music theory paid off. Yeah. <laughs> you want a t-shirt. Next time we'll do it where I play it on the trumpet. Yeah, that'd be cool. That'd be very yeah. cool. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, Ryan Spencer, before we let you go, uh, is there anything you would like to plug? Um, just uh, you know next I, I saw this really cool thing on reddit that someone does uh and if you're serious about getting in the industry or just want to learn more what they do is they stay through the credits so they get a better understanding of what each position is and who they might be or where they're located and 
you could see the complete list of songs and where the film is even shot at the end. So it's my tradition to stay through every single film until and be the last person to leave the theater. I think mm -hmm. um, it's important to pay tribute to like those that yeah. you know worked hard on it. And you might even see some hidden gems. Sometimes they put extra footage in there. You never know. Yeah. Um, but what someone did was they always reach out to someone and thank them for their work on the film. They could be like the first set medic or the chef yeah. or whatever it may be. And I thought that was just a really cool thing. And that that's another cool. thing where it's like, you never know what conversation they might say, Hey, why don't you join us next time on set? Or, uh, yeah, like this is what I did and it could inspire you. So there's countless amount of people that are behind the scenes and it's just important to see who they are, what they do. And, um, uh, it's a great way to stay intrigued. So yeah. that's, that's my word of advice. Awesome. That's that, good advice. That's great. That's fantastic. Thank well, you. thank you so much, Ryan, for joining us today. This was a fantastic yeah, this was very session. Cool. Very Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you guys. I had a great time and, uh, thanks for all that you're doing and, uh, helping people learn more about the industry. It's, it's really important. And like you, like the title of your podcast, there is a life behind the credits. Life in the Credits is hosted and produced by me, Susan Swarner. And me, Ben Bloom. It's executive produced by Michelle Levin. The music is written and performed by Steve Trowbridge. You can hear more of Steve's music at TrowbridgeSounds.com. The show logo is created by Melissa Durkin. If you'd like to support Life in the Credits and get access to exclusive perks, you can do so at Patreon.com. If you'd like to follow or get a hold of us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Life in the Credits or shoot us an email at LifeInTheCredits at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Fake it till you make it, I guess. Fake it till right. you make it. Yeah. Yep. A bad lesson for all you kids out there. <laughs> right. yeah. yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. Or only wow. do it for a couple of years and then right. join the FBI. 17 to 19. And then <laughs> yeah, that's your, yeah. Grace, grace, <laughs> that's your grace period. <laughs>